Hello, everyone. You're listening to Studio 1.0. I'm Emily Chang. He's been dubbed the cowboy of the NSA and a spy king. A young Keith Alexander says he never aspired to stay in the military, but became a star graduate at West Point. He went on to become a four-star general, served multiple tours, including Operation Desert Storm. Then in 2005, he was officially sworn in as the director of the National Security Agency under President George W. Bush. He held the post for eight years, the longest of any NSA chief during the agency's most challenging period in history, the revelations of Edward Snowden about government surveillance. These days, he's still tackling cybercrime, but on the corporate side, as the founder and CEO of IronNet, a cybersecurity startup. Joining me on this edition of Studio 1.0, former NSA Director General Keith Alexander. General, it's so great to have you here on the show. Thanks, Emily. Good Thank to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we have to start off with the standoff between Apple and the FBI. Google, Facebook, tech companies have sided with Apple, and this has reopened a divide between Washington and Silicon Valley. How sustainable is it for tech companies to be at odds with their government? Well, I think everybody has the right to an opinion. Mm -hmm. I think what we have to do, though, you know, is we have to learn how to get our country back together mm -hmm. and take the best of what we represent and put that on the table. And, you know, when I look at the great capabilities that are coming out of the tech community, these are phenomenal. Tremendous opportunities. You know, look at your kids, uh, the opportunities that you have for education, the opportunities we have for medicine, for communications, and all those things. It's extraordinary. But there are tremendous vulnerabilities with it. And we're outpacing the ability for the policy community to keep up. I wouldn't say slow down, but I would say because we've gone so far so fast, how do we help the policy community catch up? And this encryption issue is just such a problem. If communications had been encrypted over the last decade, how would the world be different? A great one is the Najibullah Azazi case. If you encrypt communications and the government can't read the content when it's authorized by a court order to do so, and if you recall in that one, that's where a al-Qaeda terrorist in Pakistan was talking to somebody in Colorado. NSA intercepted that. If it was encrypted, all we'd know is somebody talked to somebody in the United States. But that goes on so frequently that FBI wouldn't have enough information to stop it. So it is my assessment that that one would have gotten through. So an attack on the New York City subway, city subway might have happened, you say, yes. if communications had been encrypted. That's correct. And you hadn't been able to intercept right. them. Everybody keeps saying the government in Silicon Valley should work together. Give me some specifics. How can the government in Silicon Valley work together for the better? Yeah, so I would put together a group that addresses that encryption issue and comes up with a middle ground solution that the companies, the government, and the American people could live with. Twitter has been shutting down ISIS accounts after many years. What are your thoughts on having teams of people from, the Silicon, Valley, from Silicon Valley and from the government working together in a more official way? Well, I think that's, that's really important. I think what that represents on the Twitter side is accounts that are opened up for ISIS for recruiting and doing things like that. And I think that's exactly right, or um, ones that clearly are going after creating jihads. 
I think we've got to come up with a solution for that. So I think what Twitter's doing is exactly right. You wouldn't put child pornography on there. You wouldn't put, um, you know, there's all sorts of things that we wouldn't allow on the network. So how do we address it with terrorism? Now, General, you may well go down in history as the guy who was the head of the NSA during the revelations of Edward Snowden. How do you feel about that? I think it gives Snowden too much credit. You know, what he divulged, one, is something that was a court order approved by Congress and the executive branch. And what the investigations found is NSA was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. So he revealed a classified program that was meant to protect our country. NSA doesn't get to choose who classifies it. That's an executive branch, and that is a congressional and a court decision. Mm -hmm. NSA's responsibility is to conduct that, and there is legal precedence for doing that, and it was the right thing when you look at the number of terrorist attacks. So I think what he did was he thought he was better than all three, mm -hmm. and the press treated him like that. They treated him as a hero, and here's a guy who, who's going to ultimately cause a lot of lives to be lost. That debate was going on in Congress at the same time. Do you make it more public? That's a, that's a debate outside of NSA. You think that the Paris attacks could have been stopped if Edward Snowden hadn't happened? Well, I think we'd had more information for sure, and I think what terrorists are learning is how to bypass intelligence and law enforcement. We uh, said that the most likely place to be hit was Paris for all these reasons, and it was. And I think you're going to see increased attacks in Europe and potentially the United States because of the leaks. The encryption will hurt it going forward. So I think one of the things that we need to look at is what was he doing, why did he do it? And I think what the press hasn't dove into is if he revealed that one, one page why did he take over a million documents? So he has a lot more. Well, you, you know publicly it's been revealed that he took over a million documents. One of those was that document. What about the other million plus documents he took? So who do you think is behind him? Well, I think clearly today you have to look at Russia and his influence by Russia. Because when you look at all the revelations, you know, being a reporter, as good as you are, you would quickly come to the a conclusion that all the stuff that's been revealed showed NSA spying on everybody but one country, Russia. Hmm. So you think the Makes Russian government is behind Edward Snowden? Well, and I was. don't. No, I didn't go that far. I think that today there's clearly he has to be doing something for Russia to keep right. him there. Uh, you know, he'll deny it. He'll deny it. And it's in Russia's best interest that he deny it too, because that makes them look better. But I am concerned about that. For millennials, Snowden has become the voice of conscience when it comes to government surveillance. He's, he's in exile in Russia. He still talks to audiences in the United States he's universities. To come back and face justice, right? Are you outraged by that? Um, that the millennials treat him? I think what you see, here's the issue. The way it's reported, and this is where you and others can help, we sensationalize Snowden, but we didn't explain what the government was actually doing in a way that people could understand. So the perception was the government's listening to your phone calls and reading your emails. But you now know that's not true. So what is the full story? Well, I think the full story is exactly what's, what's occurred with the data program, the metadata program. And in that data program, 
all the information goes into a vault, and the government is only authorized to look at it when it can prove that it's related to al-Qaeda or related terrorist group. It doesn't get to see yours or mine unless we're talking to a terrorist. And has that data actually stopped attacks? Has that it data has. actually kept it us has. safe? And I'm not, I'm not for just trampling over anybody's uh, communications and, and stuff. I'm for a reasonable approach. And it's interesting that Jeff Stone didn't like this program either. I use that because, remember, he's on one side, I'd be on the other, theoretically. Mm -hmm. But what he came to was, let's move the data so that the government's not holding it. It's now at the service providers. And when the government goes to look at it, we can audit, as we did, every time the government looks at it. So those audits were available for the courts, Congress, and the administration to look at, which is what the review group looked at. And lo and behold, they found out that the only times that NSA looked at them was associated with terrorists, mm -hmm. period. And any mistakes that NSA ever made were reported to the courts, Congress, and the administration, just as we were responsible for doing. So my question is, how did you get from a metadata program that we're listening to their phone calls and reading their emails? You were born in Syracuse, New York. You're the third of five children. Um, you were a newspaper delivery boy. You ran track. What kind of kid were you? Oh, I was probably more on the trouble side than uh, the, uh, I did good academically, but you know, I was always out testing the limits uh, you know, of, of authority. I had a great time in high school and a great time in college. And yet you ended up at West Point. How yeah. does this troubled kid end up at West Point? I didn't know anything about the military. My dad was uh, in the Marine Corps at the end of World War II, served in the Pacific. I got a full scholarship to Syracuse and Purdue. My mother encouraged me to apply to West Point. I did and I got accepted. And I was trying to see which one do you want to do? And I found out that West Point pays you. I thought, wow, that's a good deal. How hard could that be? And, and somebody says, well, you know, they harass you there. I had no idea. I said, uh, how bad could it be? I got there and the first uh, three days, I called up my dad and I said, hey, these people are crazy. Come and get me. Um, but actually what I found is what a great uh, set of Americans they were. You know, I had a good academic background in high school, but I learned the ethics at West Point about duty, honor, country. And I think uh, my classmates and all that, you know, we joke about some of the things, but when you look at where those people came and what they've done for our nation, it's incredible. In fact, there were three other future four-star generals in class with you, David Petraeus, Martin Dempsey, Walter Sharp. Did you know then that they would become so powerful? Well, Are you I friends? Think, yeah, well, I would have said I knew Marty really well. I knew Skip, um, and they knew me. We'd, if we had asked any of us three, were we ever, I thought I was only going to stay for five years. Yeah. I think everybody thought Dave would be. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think uh, for me, um, I'm as surprised as they are. And then you went on from West Point to rise quickly through the ranks and... Didn't feel so quick at the so, time. So, right, you, if you only intended to stay five years, what happened? Well, actually, it was in, uh, as my five years were coming out, I had a great mentor. Uh, at the time, he was a Brigadier General. He was a Colonel, then a Brigadier General, Tom Weinstein, went on to be Lieutenant General that had been at West Point that talked about where do we, how do we take the future of our army? If we don't keep good people in the army, how do we change our army? 
from where it was in the mid-70s to what we needed for the first desert storm. And what he convinced me is these are good people and you know you can go out and make money or you can help these guys. And so we talked about that with my wife and my uh, family and decided to stay. I got a job offer at 20 years. It was incredible. I would have made three times what I made in the military. I went home, told my daughters and my wife, and the kids all said, no, you need to stay in the Army. They gave up, you know, perhaps better cars for themselves and all that because they thought it was the right thing to do for the country. And uh, I was really proud of that because uh, I thought it was the right thing. In 2001, you were head of Army Intelligence and Security Command. Then 9-11 happened. How much did 9-11 surprise you? Uh, we were, let me back up a little bit, because going into 9-11, when I was at Central Command, um, I was there for the East Africa Embassy bombings. I'd been there one week. And so we knew that terrorism was growing. I was through East Africa Embassy bombings and the USS Cole, then got to INSCOM, and uh, we were concerned about terrorists. And we raised that to a, a number of people. So we were concerned that our nation was at risk. And I think when people came out of 9-11, the answer was there are these gaps. So that's what many of these programs were developed is to address those gaps. How do you help the intelligence community get information to law enforcement to stop an attack? It was in response to 9-11 that you started monitoring phone calls and emails no, of American citizens. No, I was citizens. at INSCOM, so that's mm -hmm. an NSA program. So it I was in response to 9-11 that the NSA started? That's right, so I wasn't at NSA. for So those programs went on for four years before I got there. Uh, I got there at the time that they were being folded under the FISA court. And so you joined the NSA when these programs were already in place. That's right. Did you have any second thoughts about them? The one thing I thought uh, as we were going through it that was good is that they were going under the FISA court. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's the right thing, so we pushed hard to get that done. You didn't think this could trample on civil liberties at all? Well, I, I, you could see both sides of it. The issue is, if I make it really public that we're doing A, then terrorists are going to get through. We are concerned about another 9-11. We see all these actions going on. And the courts looked at this and said, here's how you ensure both. And so it is not only do you collect this information, but to ensure civil liberties and privacy, under the Fourth Amendment, here is how you now access that data, here's how you record it, and here's how you'll be overseen. And so there were tremendous measures put on NSA to ensure that. That part is not well articulated to the public, but if they saw that, they'd say, wow, okay, so that's amazing. So you mean to look at that data, you had to show the court when you're looking at, you had to document each step and then have court, Congress, and the administration look at it each time you did that? Yes. And so it wasn't NSA just, you know, going in there and running around. This was a very deliberate program for specific means. The PRISM program was also in place at this That's point, right? right? Mm -hmm. This is the program to secretly collect information from U.S. technology companies. Under 702, under FISA. That's correct. And so PRISM was the program that allowed us to see the New York City subway. Mm -hmm. That was the first part. Was PRISM a backdoor? No, PRISM was a court order. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is a wiretap a, ba a backdoor? And the answer is no. I mean, we've had wiretaps. So PRISM was a modern-day wiretap. And you've maintained that the tech companies did know about this, even though they claim that they didn't. Well, they were served with court orders. Mm -hmm. 
right? I mean, that's what the Verizon order and all the other ones that are public now showed. Um, and they were, by law, required to do those. So when Tim Cook or Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Page says, we had no idea this was happening, we are outraged. I, I think the issue comes not at that. I think it's a little bit more nuanced. I think the issue is, what does NSA collect to conduct its foreign intelligence mission? And the perception is NSA is into their servers and stuff. Remember, there was a set of that. That's not true. So you know, what is true? Um, NSA is not in any of the servers, of, uh, to my knowledge. Apple wasn't on my watch. Apple, Google, any of those. NSA is authorized to collect communications with those companies under the FISA Amendments Act. And what it has to do is serve a court order to do that. And in only certain conditions can it do it. Your first day in the private sector, first what day. was that like? was April Fool's. <laughs> it was? It was, was one April, so I thought, you know, knowing me and some of my friends, I was, I was betting that somebody was going to call me and saying, your retirement has been pushed back. My first day, I got on a plane to come out to a conference in uh, Las Vegas. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had several job offers. I didn't know if I wanted to work for somebody. I, you know, I, I'm not, wasn't looking forward to working with somebody. And I talked to some of the financial institutions and other companies, and they said, with what you know about cybersecurity, why don't you start a cybersecurity company uh, to solve some of these problems? And the more we got onto it, I talked to some of the guys who were out and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And in six weeks, we said, hmm, we could start a company. So IronNet Cybersecurity is your cybersecurity firm. You're going to do a big public rollout, taking on more companies. You've said you're developing breakthrough technology. What is that technology? Breakthrough. Really good <laughs> what stuff. What can you tell us about the technology? You know, that, I would say like Donald Trump, it's breakthrough. It's really good. You're going to love it. It's going to make everybody safer. Winning? <laughs> Winning. <laughs> um, actually, it is, uh, when you look at cybersecurity for a company, uh, you know, a bank, an energy company, a healthcare company, what are the problems that you see on it? and how do we address those? So what we're trying to do is address head-on the problems that couldn't stop the Sony or the other attacks that went on. We're trying to address that. And that's with true behavioral models, behavioral analytics, the ability to see the entire network flows at network speed and to be able to respond and give people much faster capabilities in terms of doing analysis to find the fault and fix that. What does a Donald Trump presidency mean for our national security? Well, I don't know. I would, I would say uh, that's yet to be known. Does that concern you? Well, I have a lot of concerns. Um, you know, I don't know Donald Trump, so uh, I'd probably be the, the least to, uh, the worst person to take any one of these and say, who is the right person? But he here's may what, well be your party's nominee. He could be. Well, my party. I have two parties. And, the, and uh, my thought is, on all of these, um, what does our nation need? And what would I look for in a president? We need to address Social Security. We need to address Medicare. We need to fix our debt. And we need to make sure our nation is secure. And so. Who are the candidates that can do that? And that's what I look to is those. With national security being at the forefront, I think, you know, my, my initial 
look at this is when you take a person like Reagan, what Reagan had was the experience to do that. He had the experience to, as a governor of California, to look at how to run a country. I think that experience is really necessary. Which Donald Trump doesn't have. Well, and so the question is how much um, experience does he have from business that can translate? And that's an issue I don't know the answer to. So I have not studied Donald Trump, to be honest. And so it would be unfair for me to, to just take off a limited set to say, oh, he's bad or he's good or either way. I think what really the American people need to look at if I were to do is take those four, national security and the three things that we said, and who's the person that can help our country get to where it needs to be? You know, there was a great statement by Warren Buffett that talked about when you look at these presidential debates, I think what's going on in the way they're throwing rocks at each other, that's wrong. We have a great country. You know, your children, my grandchildren, are the luckiest kids on earth to be born here. Mm -hmm. This is a wonderful country that we have. We should be talking about how we make it better, how we go out. And what we've come down to is one of the worst bipartisan set of politics that I've seen. So that part, I am not a, in favor of. I would like a more deliberate set of discussions on solving those problems. What about Bernie Sanders? What would a Sanders presidency mean for our national security? Well, again, I haven't studied Sanders either. And so I'm delinquent, but I do know a lot about cybersecurity. Um, I would be, you know, what I've heard on that is, is probably where you are. Um, but I think South Carolina already haven't gone. I think it's going to be hard for Sanders to come in. And so the question is what, what about happens? Hillary Clinton? Yeah, so I think the question tomorrow is who, Clinton and who. And then I would take that and create a chart and lay it all out. I think there's a lot of issues yet to be played in this election process. Um, like? Well, you know, so what happens with Clinton and the server? What happens tomorrow with um, uh, the, was it Super Tuesday? Right. What do you think of the Clinton server issues given your experience with cybersecurity and servers? So I think at the end of the day, um, what the courts and the FBI need to look at is, did she do anything wrong? Was it her fault or did somebody else do it? And what, and I think this is where Comey is really good. I think Comey will call it straight, apolitical. And that's what our nation needs, people that can do that. So I think what he finds in his people, he will put on the table. Now, in May 2014, you told The New Yorker, I'm really concerned that something bad's going to happen. And I don't want to be chicken little, but I do think people need to know that we're at greater risk and there's more coming our way. Do you still believe this? In cyber. Yeah. And in terrorism. I believe it in both. What, what's coming? Well, in cyber, when you look at what's happened uh, in terms of from 2007 up to 14 and then now, you see an increased set of exploits and attacks against countries. You see uh, going from financial institutions now to energy institutions. So in the Asian countries, you're seeing something called dust storm. Mm -hmm. In the European US, you saw Havocs. You saw uh, Ukrainian power grid taken down in December and January. Those kinds of things are, I think, indications of what's to come. And so it really makes it important that we 
upgun our cybersecurity capabilities. What worries you most? I think I'm worried about uh, our nation in the cybersecurity and terrorism. Uh, we don't, we've lost a lot of capabilities there. And I don't think as good as we were in the decade following 9-11, I don't think this next decade will be anywhere close. Really? Because we've lost that much capability. I think the damage... So could 9-11 happen again? I think we'll see significant terrorist events. If I were to predict, I would predict more likely in Europe than the U.S. because it's easier for terrorists to get there. I think the travel programs has helped a great deal. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's sufficient. I think we're going to see a number of jihadist and lone wolf-like things. And I think that will bring us back to this discussion on civil liberties and privacy and security. So why do I say solve that? Right now, we have an opportunity to do this in an unemotional manner. We should take that opportunity and solve these problems to the best of our ability. It won't be perfect, but get reasonable people to the table. And I would say for the Google, Apple, Facebook, and the government, show them what's going on. And then say, so how do we do this? And I think you can do it both. And I think our country, our government, should help those come up with an international solution that doesn't disadvantage our industry. Is privacy, true privacy, actually possible? Don't tell anybody anything that you don't want anybody to know. What was that thing? If, if two people know a secret, it's not a secret. Um, I do think there is a way to do privacy, actually. And I think there's also an evolving role of what is privacy. So it's interesting, you know, I was reading about the European Union's thoughts on privacy that included the internet protocol address. Mm -hmm. So an IP address they consider as private, but it's like a person's name or their phone number. Mm -hmm. So they say name, phone number, address is all private information that's in a public phone book. Isn't that ironic that that's private information that's in this big phone book? So um, I think what we're seeing is these tools and things create a different set of what's truly private. Mm -hmm. I do think we need to go further in terms of helping to articulate what's private and how you keep that private versus what you do to secure a country. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be difficult. I think this next decade, we're going to wrestle with that. You have four kids, 16 grandkids. I do. What do you want your legacy to be? I want to make sure that they, you know, take Warren Buffett's discussion, isn't this a great place? You know, it's, we want them to have a great life. We want them to be secure, to be able to leverage all this technology, to solve things like cancer, and to, you know, to have a full and happy life. And I think that means evolving what we're seeing in all these other discussions. And where I would solicit the support of you and other media outlets is help tell the whole story. Help us tell the whole story. There are some things that we can't tell, just like you wouldn't have told Enigma. But there's a lot more out there that's not being talked about that gives the rest of the story. So what should we do? I think we should have these debates, but I think they've got to put all the information on the table. And it starts with that whole Snowden thing that we talked about all the way to where we are today. General Keith Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio 1.0. Thank you, it's Emily. It's been great to have you.
Next week on Studio 1.0, Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the Huffington Post, one-time candidate for California governor, conservative then liberal commentator, and one of the most influential women in media. Also author of many books, the latest about what she believes is a sleep epidemic gripping our country. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at Emily Chang TV and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. This is Studio 1.0.